702. The Naked Scientist. Time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. And we take your calls on 011-8830702 and the WhatsApp line 0727021702. And we get to get all of your science-related questions from the good doctor. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. Now, I'm tempted at this stage to just sit silent and then, then I can say, no, I wasn't on mute. I was just, I was just thinking <laughs> for a bit. Um, are you okay? Yes, um, I'm, I'm absolutely freezing, but you are accustomed to this oh. level of cold. Yeah. <laughs> I, other than my melanin count, intentionally avoid places that get as cold as, as um, what it is right now. It's just, I'm just not that person. I, I don't understand people that say, I love winter. Why? I, I don't get it. It's freezing and it's, it's, I'm not coping. <laughs> wow. I quite like the winter in the respect that it makes me grateful for what we have in inverted commas called summer because that usually is a bit better but sometimes not much but i i do like the the change in seasons because it it gives you a sense of timing it gives you a sense of expectation and anticipation plants coming back to life crops coming up in the ground blossom coming out fruits of our labors manifest in the garden and so on so i, I kind of like that and and i do like the fact that winter time does give you a chance to anticipate that things will get better whereas if it's the same all the time i think it's it, you get a bit stuck in a rut but then i really don't like the relentless cold either so i'm i'm, I'm still looking for that ideal geography on earth where you have a winter but it's a winter on your terms not the weather's terms so then let me ask this question doctor before we op- uh, go to the lines and take all of the whatsapp questions a person's love for winter does it have anything to do or hate for winter with the time of year they were born. So my son is a winter baby, uh, born in May. It was freezing and he was like wrapped up in blankets the whole time, still yet to figure out if he genuinely loves the cold or not. I am a spring baby. I cannot stand the cold. Is there any relationship between the time of year you were born and whether you love or hate the, the cold season? I'm fearful of saying I don't think there's a relationship because inevitably as we go through each year we discover new things about epigenetics and epigenetics is where in addition to your genetic code that dictates and determines how your body runs it's the recipe book that we run out all of our biochemistry from there are additional links or controls which are exerted on our genetic code through these epigenetic markers or modifications which are added and these can be stimulated by changes in the environment for instance if you grow plants under certain conditions relentlessly then what you'll start seeing is that those plants will have offspring where metabolically they're slightly different than plants that were grown under different conditions humans that are born when their mothers have been starving for example have changes to their metabolism that gives them a higher likelihood later of developing high blood pressure, diabetes and weight gain. So I'm cautious about saying I don't think there's an obvious association between being born in the winter and having a tendency towards feeling the cold or not feeling the cold, loathing or liking the winter. But I certainly think there will be some influence of seasonality, if not because our behaviour changes. And if our behaviour changes at certain times of the year, that could in turn have other knock-on effects on the way our epigenetics works. But there are some conditions that definitely do segregate with season. We know that babies born in the winter, I'm one of them, have a higher than baseline risk of certain conditions and diseases, including certain diseases like mental illness 
Now, we don't know exactly why that is, but it might be, again, that if you've, if you've been born into an environment where there's much less access to light, that the conditions of survival might not have been so good at that time of year uh, for you historically in that sort of population or wherever you grew up or whatever, that there might be influences that are subtle that could have lifelong consequences. But you have to take all these things with a pinch of salt and also accept that the world has changed a lot. So living conditions, our nature versus our nurture is always the debate and the living conditions being much more powerful now than perhaps they were hitherto where you had less control over nature. If you're, if you're living in a much more controlled environment now where you can turn a thermostat up or down, you can get food, you don't have to go a week without it so often, then the influence of the environment is going to be less than it perhaps was. But I don't, I, I'm going to take a pinch of salt, say, no, I think it's very unlikely in the modern era that what time of year you're born has a huge influence on whether or not you respond badly or, or well to, to the wintertime. But historically, and in certain parts of the world, I think that probably is true. All right. Thank you so much. Um, let's uh, go to the questions coming through from the listeners. 0727021702. Here is a voice note. Good afternoon. A question for... Uh, Dr. Chris Smith, uh, uh, the naked scientist. Uh, why do we lose the ability to balance our ears uh, for purposes of uh, diving or flying uh, with age? We seem to, or I seem to, have lost the ability to balance my ears. I never used to have the problem, but uh, as I get a bit older, I notice I'm losing that ability. I'll listen on the radio. Thank you. Mm, terrific question, this one. And we've all experienced it. When you go up in an aeroplane, you feel your ears pop. Go up in a lift really fast, you can feel your ears popping. And dive to the bottom of a swimming pool and you feel pressure on your head until you do what? You hold your nose and blow down it and you feel your ears go pop and equalize. What's going on? Well, your ear has the outside canal, which is the bit you can stick your finger in, and it ends at your ear drum, which is a flat sheet of tissue that, seg that segregates your external ear canal from your middle ear, which is where the tiny bones are that conduct the vibrations picked up by your eardrum to your inner ear, which hears them. And that middle ear canal, or cavity, is connected to the back of your nose through a very thin tube called the eustachian tube, which opens at the roughly, if you were sort of pointing at the side of your eye with your finger, and you carried on with a very long finger through your eye and into your nose cavity, that's sort of roughly up your head where on the each side this eustachian tube opens. Now in very small babies, this tube is very small. And as babies always succumb to all kinds of infections all the time in the first few years of life, they very often have a lot of mucus in there. It blocks the tube. And if the tube is blocked, when the outside pressure changes, either high pressure like water pushing in so that the gas pressure can't push along the eustachian tube and come out in the back of your throat, or the reverse, you go up in the aeroplane, the pressure is now higher in the back of your throat than it is on the other side of your eardrum and the eardrum bulges out, this is uncomfortable, and because babies can't equalise it because their eustachian tubes are blocked, they often squeal on aeroplanes, for example. That's the reason. And if you give them something to eat or drink, when you swallow, the swallowing movement can sometimes dislodge the muck that's there, and it can help them to equalise the pressure. As we get 
older to the other end of the age spectrum, we can, of course, still catch infections. But we may have other things going on. Some people develop polyps or growths that are benign, but they, they grow and bulge and they can block up the eustachian tube. Some people get big lymph glands in that area, which can block up the eustachian tube. And also, as we get older, everything gets a bit saggier. And so it's possible that the saggy tissue can also grow and block the tunnel, the eustachian tube. The effect is the same as it is in the babies. It's harder for the gas to passively move in the right direction down the eustachian tube to equalise the pressure in the middle ear cavity compared to the outside pressure around your head, making the eardrum bulge painfully inwards or outwards, stretching it more than it should, which is why it's uncomfortable, and that's why we get the problem. Thank you so much for that question that came through. Let's go to Mbuso in Pretoria. Hi, Mbuso. Yes, Dr. Chris, I wanted to know how best can I improve my hearing aid when I'm sleeping? Like for example, when somebody walks in the house or in my room, how can I best improve my hearing aid when I'm sleeping? Um, I'm not really sure. Are you, are you saying you want to be able to, to detect that they're there and, um, and hear them better? When yes, when that, somebody... Yes, when somebody opens the door or they walk in or whatever the case may be. Most people complain of having the opposite problem, which is that they wish they were a bit of a deeper sleeper and they didn't get disturbed by people walking in. I'm, I'm one of them. I get woken up so easily and then I can't get back to sleep. I think it comes down to individuals. Some people are deep sleepers and are much harder to rouse when they're sleeping and much harder to disturb. Even in a brightly lit room, they can nod off and they'll stay asleep until they get really quite vigorously shaken. Other people wake at the drop of a hat. It might be if you're really struggling to, to um, get woken up and you're also nodding off at times when you don't want to. Maybe you're a bit sleep deprived and it might be that having a bit more sleep will help you to wake up more easily when that happens. But I think it sounds to me like you're, you're, you're perfectly normal and that um, you're one of these people that's a little bit harder to wake up when they nod off. Thank you so much, Mbuso, for that question that came through. Um, there's somebody, T says, Lebo, I'm an October baby, but I love my African winters. I'd rather shiver than sweat buckets. And all the people that say they absolutely love winter always say that. But I say the difference, though, is that you can take clothes off when you're hot, but you can't put on something that's not there. That's my issue. Like, those of you that love winter, I refuse. I just, I can't accept. It makes sense if, like, you've got the hot chocolate and you're cozying up by a fireplace and it's all romantic, but... I, what we experienced this morning is something else completely different. Uh, Chin Tan from Benoni says, recently I saw an article about a new type of quantum computer that could be created to split sound. What does this mean and what could we learn from this? The, I missed the question because it broke up a little bit. It's a quantum computer that could be used to... Split sound. It could be used, it, a quantum computer that could be created to split sound. What does this mean and what could we learn from this? I haven't come across the, the notion of it splitting sound, but this was a story that was published in the last week or so where researchers proudly announced had invented or come up with a way of doing quantum computing which enabled them to do in uh, an instant what normal computers would take perhaps half a century to do in terms of crunching through the calculations. What's a quantum computer? Well, it's, it's a computer that works a bit more like our brains work compared to how a traditional computer works. How do traditional computers work? They work in serial processing. In other words, 
you put something in, it crunches through and generates an output. Whereas our brains are very good at parallel processing. They do lots of things all at once. So why don't we make computers like that? Because the answer is our brains are error prone. Anyone who's ever forgotten where their car keys are knows only too well that our brains are very, very powerful at some things, but very, very slow and error prone at other things. So an enormous amount of the processing power that goes into normal computing is to constrain and control how accurate they are. We make sure that when they're producing an output, it's the same output every time, time and time again. With a quantum computer, what you're able to do is, unlike a normal traditional computer which thinks in noughts and ones, it's binary, a switch is either on or off, you've either got black or white. A quantum computer has all the grayscale between the two, all the different shades between a white and a black, as it were. That's one way of thinking of it. So it's got huge numbers of degrees of freedom. And in this way, you can achieve parallel computing, parallel processing, which gives you extraordinary processing power. And this enables us to do that. There will be some things that you don't need this for, but there are some things where you have to be able to crunch through enormous numbers of possibilities and work out how to solve a problem by considering enormous numbers of, of variables all at once. And having that kind of computing approach is, is extremely powerful for doing that. And some people have said that when we do crack the computer, the, the quantum computer problem, we're going to have to rethink internet security because it will instantly make redundant all of our efforts to protect ourselves with the current generation of internet security that we have. Mm, definitely something to think about. Here's a question that's come through on voice note. Hi, Kelebukhile, and hello, doctor. I don't know if this question will be relevant, but then I wanted to ask, I have this sharp pain inside my private pants. Actually, I can, I can feel it coming. Let me say when I bend down i would know if i move right now this pain oh yo it will hit me like very sharp so it's not a frequent thing that is happening but i've noticed that this pain comes and go i don't know if doctor you can assist me with that thank you thank you so much that that one might be a little bit tricky because I'm sure, doctor, um, um, you would have so many questions like, you know, was there intercourse? Was there surgery? There's so many things, um, 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 that you might want to consider to respond to that. Mm. I mean, we don't do on online diagnosis yes. here, so we're always very cautious about uh, answering this in very general terms because this is not a substitute for seeing someone who is your proper paid-up doctor who knows your past medical history and can, as Lebo says, ask you important other follow-up questions. But generally, the first thing, when someone presents with a pain, the first thing any kind of practitioner is going to say is, well, when did it start? How long have you had this? Is this normal for you? I know it's a pain, but does it come and go regularly? Is there something you're always doing that makes it happen? Is there anything that you do that makes it better? Is it associated with you doing a specific thing or taking a certain thing or eating a certain thing? As we've mentioned, maybe sex is involved. So it's important to try to work out what provokes the pain and what seems to relieve the pain. If it's something that happens with position, then it sounds like it could be a mechanical aspect to it. In other words, if you bend in a certain position and then it comes on, often this can, this can be a structural thing with, say, the backbone or a nerve being pinched. Often nerves if they're squeezed somewhere along the spinal column, can produce what's called referred pain. And sciatica is a good example of this. If you squeeze a nerve in your back, bizarrely, 
although not bizarrely if you know the anatomy, your foot will hurt and your big toe will go numb. And the reason is that if you squeeze the nerve that supplies that part of the body, then that region feels pain because the nerve is being irritated that would normally signal when that part of the body is being irritated. So this is something else to consider. Is this referred pain? Is there something structural going on? So I think what you must do is, if this is a new thing, if it's a severe, th if it's a new thing and it's been going on for a while and you can't account for it and you, you, you need to get it investigated, you need to go and see someone who will ask these sorts of questions and can rule out anything dodgy that's going on. If it's a, a trivial thing that's only just happened, then you could say, well, I'll give it a few days, and if it keeps keeps doing this, then I'm, I'm going to escalate this and get it investigated. In the meantime, we're going to try simple remedies, simple painkillers or hot water bottles, and just relaxing a bit and seeing if I, can, if I can get it better on its own. But if it doesn't get better, you must get this investigated because there's a whole raft of things that this could be linked to, and, and they need to be ruled out. Thank you so much, Dr. Chris Smith. And definitely next week, we're going to pick up on such a, an important one, a person asking, why is it that when it is cold, those of you that have had operations, be it knee or hip, right there next week.